So how did your parents announce you to the world? Like when they found out they were pregnant, what did they do? I know nowadays we know what people do. They, they go on social media, and I'm not making fun of this, but this is what everybody does, right? Well, how do you, when you get pregnant, what do you do? It's like, well, you put a picture of the ultrasound up normally, right? You have a little chalkboard. You have a little pair of shoes. Everybody looks surprised. The woman has her hand on her stomach, right? And, and that is what we would call a, a pregnancy announcement. There's normally a chalkboard. It says coming or due date, and everybody's really excited, and it's the post every year that gets the most likes, right, and the most comments and the most shares, and Anyway, and that's what they do. And, you know, back in the day, they used to uh, put it in the newspaper. They used to celebrate different ways. But, but it's something, and this is going to be interesting to think about, but babies, the birth of a baby, and maybe it's self-evident to you, but the birth of a baby has always been something. It's transculture. It's, it's overall history. The, the coming of a baby, the birth of a baby, everybody's excited about it. Like everybody. Something's wrong with you if you're not excited about the birth of a baby. It's like, well, why is that? It's like, well, because, think about that for a second. It's like, well, because babies represent the future, they represent potential. They represent what could be, right? This is why every parent who has a kid it's like, thinks their kid's a genius until they get to middle school. Like, okay, kid's not a genius. You know, thought, <laughs> thought, he, thought she was a genius, thought he was a genius. Like, everyone thinks their kid's an athlete until they get to high school. Okay, kid's not an athlete. Okay. Um, right, you got to kind of be honest. But, but then the, the next thing that happens, and this is more modern, <clears throat> are gender reveal kind of, you know, celebrations, parties, whatever. And that's new because the ultrasound's new, Right? 1940s, that comes out, really isn't widely used until, really isn't even trusted until the 70s and 80s. And, and so if you think about it, a lot of your parents and some of your grandparents and all of our great-grandparents, that's an interesting thought, didn't know if they were having a boy or girl, right? My parents didn't know. They, they didn't know boy or girl. If I was going to be a girl, I was going to be called Adrian. My parents love Rocky, okay? <laughs> if you know that movie. But that's what I was going to be called. Was, my name was going to be Adrian. They didn't know. They didn't know my brother was going to be a boy until he was born. And so, but nowadays it's like, you know, you know hit a golf ball and it's going to be blue or pink and you know, it's cut a piece of, you know, cake, and it's, it's hit a pinata, and they're all good things, right? So there's like, if you think about it, though, when a baby's born, three things happen, or when, when you find out you're pregnant, first there's like, hey, we're pregnant, woo, you know, and then there's, hey, it's a boy or girl, and everyone's, woo, you know, that's like, that's 16 weeks to like 20 weeks, and then the third thing normally comes a little bit later is the name. Now, some of you know right away, and you tell us right away, and that's great, but a lot of you, you kind of say, well, the name's the one thing I might hold on to, Right? Like, I'll, I'm going to wait, and then, and then kind of when he's born or when she's born, I'm going to say the name. Well, the reason I bring all this up is because today we're going to look at two babies that were born. And we're told when they're going to be born, we're told their gender, we're told their name, and we're told it supernaturally, we're told it spiritually, we're told it before it's going to happen. And it's the story of Abraham and Sarah, and it's the story of Joseph and Mary. And it's the story of Isaac being born in the Old Testament. It's the story of um, Jesus being born in the New Testament. And you, you can type to return to Genesis 21. You can scroll to, swipe to, you can open up your Codex Bible. Those of you who still have those, okay, the, <laughs> it looks like a book and you open it up and you read it. That's a Bible. Um, you can open up to Genesis chapter 21 and we're going to be here for a while. We're going to be in two places. So if you bookmark, we're going to be in Genesis 21. We're going to be in Luke 1. This is really neat because what you see in the Bible is it though, though the Bible is many books made up of 66 books, it's really one story, right? It's got one author. It's got 40 authors, human authors. It's got one divine author. Right? It's got many individual books with messages, but it has one overarching message. It has one primary hero. It has one thing that everybody's pointing to. Right? Even if we, if we read, and I'll just show you this real quick. If we read John chapter 8, this should be on the screen. It says this, your father Abraham, this is Jesus talking, he rejoiced that he would see my day. And he, and he saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. So see, what Abraham understood is that or what Jesus understood is that Abraham was a secondary and supporting character 
that he was ultimately pointing to and preparing for Jesus. That's actually a good way to read all the Bible. It's pointing to and preparing. It's anticipating and it's announcing Jesus. That's actually also a good way to understand your own life. You're not the primary character in your story. If you are, you'll be disappointed because you're like, well, the primary character doesn't get sick. The main character doesn't, you know, remain single, whatever it is. So, but when you realize, wait a second, I'm a secondary character, I'm a supporting character, the story's not ultimately about me, there's actually a lot of freedom in that. So Jesus says, hey, look, Abraham saw me, Abraham talked about me. Well, they didn't like that, verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What we're going to talk about today is the story of Isaac being born and the story of Jesus being born. And we're going to see that though, like I said, though they happen thousands of years apart, there's a lot of similarities. And we see that the, the Bible, they're both miraculous births, for example. Obviously, Jesus is more miraculous, but they're both miraculous. Um, and also, you see that God works through all different types of people. Like, one's a, an old, rich couple who's very established in the community. That's like the definition of who Abraham is Sarah. It's like, old, rich, established. It's like, okay, well, who's married? It's like, young, poor, obscure. Uh, it, most likely illiterate. And, and uh, from a very small town, Nazareth, I mean, it's, it's not even found on any maps. It's the place where you want to maybe be from but not go to, right? Uh, that, that's the kind of place that Nazareth was. And so here's what I want you to see. Verse 1 of chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. Now, if you underline in your Bible, it's, you know, it's, it's always helpful to look at things that are repeated. So this is repeated. It's going to say it three times. Basically, the Lord does what he says. The Lord will do what he says. The Lord did what he said. God will always deliver on his promises. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Verse 2. And Sarah conceived. There's the birth announcement. Um, and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. So what you're going to see here is, is there's a reference there to time. Now that's interesting because it says the time which God told him. It's like, and if you look up the word time in the Bible, like how it's used, it's really interesting. It says like, um, Jesus Christ died for sinners at the right time. It's like, the right time? It's like we were waiting thousands of years for that. But yeah, in God's mind, it was the right time. Uh, you know, God sent forth his son. This is Galatians chapter four, at the fullness of time. It's like, what does that mean? It's like uh, when God decided it was right, right? And, and what we need to understand, this is what we actually see. If you understand the whole story of Abraham and Sarah, and it actually will describe your life. And this is why, by the way, we love the Bible. Because when you read the Bible, it's like, well, this is a bunch of things that happened. It's like, no, this is what happens. It's not as much about reading the Bible. It is. It's about having the Bible read you. Like, this is, actually, this is actually the story of my life. Like, so Abraham and Sarah, it's been nine chapters, but it's been 25 years. And there they are, and, you know, they're waiting. They're, they're in between two things, which you're in between in your life in some area, promise and provision. That's what you live in between. You live between what God has said and your experience of it, right? The, the whole Christian life actually lived between faith and sight. That's the whole life. It's like, what is the end of the Bible? We will see him face to face. That's the end of the book of Revelation. It's like, that's where we live. We live in between faith and sight, and in the meantime, we wrestle with all that. And if you look at the story of Abraham and Sarah, they do exactly what you and I do when we have to live a life of faith. It's like, well, sometimes we're doing well, and sometimes we're struggling financially. And sometimes their marriage is good, but sometimes there's marital strife. And then sometimes they take things into their own hands, and then that doesn't go well, and they repent, and they learn, and they grow, and here they are again, they're trusting the Lord again. And like, that's, that's the whole Christian life. And so what we see here is they're living in between, it's been 25 years, what God said, finally God delivers. And I want to talk about this because I think this is a big deal for, for all of us in the room, right? All of us, we have certain promises that we're hoping God will fulfill in our life, right? And we don't maybe have a Bible verse for it. Like there's not a Bible verse, unfortunately, many of us feel this way. There's not a Bible verse for you will get married. It'd be a great verse. If that verse was in the Bible, we'd love it. There's not a Bible verse that says um, uh, you will definitely be able to have children. 
There's not, we don't have a promise of that, but, but what happens in people's lives, and, I, and I'm sympathetic to this, and this is what, what's going on with some of you, right? There's some of you, and especially the single women in, in the room, right? And you, and you read the Bible, and you read Genesis 1, and you read it, it goes, it's not good for man to be alone. You go, all right, Lord, I agree. Um, <laughs> I, and true, I, help him meet me, and he will not be alone anymore, right? Um, you, 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 right? You, you, people come up to you and go, singleness is a gift. You're like, I'm looking for the gift receipt, okay? I, I don't, this is not what I, this is not what I, well, this is not the kind of gift that I wanted, right? This is what happens. It's like, you read the Bible, and you, you read uh, Proverbs, and it says in Proverbs, these are real verses, and you read Proverbs, it goes, uh, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, and you go, find me. <laughs> I'm a good thing, right? I mean, and, and so it's, and, and, and again, we're getting toward the holidays, and it's like, it's, you know, it's funny, but it's not funny, right? It's like, ha, it's funny. You're like, yeah, everyone's laughing, and then I get in the car alone, and I go home today, and everyone else goes home with their spouse. And so there's just this, there's this longing, you know, that we have. It's like, well, I don't, I don't love my age and my stage, and I, and I, and I know God's a good God, but, but, and I know he's once has a plan for my life, and I've got general promises, but I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I'll tell you another big one, healing. It's like, well, people pray for healing all the time. It's like, you know, and this is a class, and we, as, our, as the church gets older, you know, normally you end up in the hospital more and more as your church ages. But I'm in the hospital, you know, on a somewhat regular basis, and, you know, terrible things, illness and injury happen in our church and to people that we love, and, you know, after 15 years of being in full-time ministry, what you learn is like, well, well you know, first of all, if you're, if you're in that situation, you wrestle with it, the Lord, right? You're like, all right, Lord, you're like, do you heal? Okay, I think you still heal. I don't know how you do it, but like, you know, you heal in the Bible, and Jesus, he, I mean, like a third of his ministry is healing, so like, I think you heal. And like, even sometimes it looks like you heal people accidentally. Like, not really, but people touch you and they get healed. It's like, okay, so you heal people. And then, like, I've even read stories in it in church history. And like, will you heal me? Because I have this chronic illness that I don't, you know, or, or I've got this injury that I have. Or, you know, or you know, sometimes you get better. It's like, and I got cancer and I eat healthy. And they don't eat healthy, and they, they're, but, they, but they're okay, and I've got cancer. And what you learn is, that, you know, as a pastor, you learn this as a Christian. It's like, well, you go pray for people, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not being funny about this at all. It's like, you pray for certain people. You say, Lord, I pray that you heal, heal them. And it seems like the Lord heals them. It's like, well, the chemotherapy takes, and they recover, and sometimes it's through normal means of the medicine. Sometimes it's, it's miraculous. And then other times you pray for people, and the Lord heals them, but he heals them in heaven. And, that, and, and it's like, and there's not, you know, and it's like, well, is it, do the more godly ones get healed here? It's like, no, sorry, it doesn't work that way, you know? We've seen both, and so that's another thing that people wrestle with. And it's like, all right, Lord, I know you want me to, you know, uh, here's another one, job, career, right? It's like, it's very common to talk to men, and even men who make a lot of money. It's like, I can't stand my job. You know, it's like, I, I, I just, it, it's, it's sucking the life out of me. It's making me miserable, you know? And he's like, well, or, you know, or there are other reasons. Some people are like, yeah, I'm underpaid. I'm underemployed. I'm underappreciated. I'm under everything. That's kind of what they feel like. You know, and that's okay. And it's like, well, what would, it, what would be a nice thing? Well, it would be a nice thing if you could make enough money to provide for your family so you weren't stressed all the time. That would be nice. You know, and it would be nice. And you're, like, and you're looking to the Lord saying, Lord, I know you have these promises that, like, you gave me gifts and you gave me skills. And, you know, I know, if you're, you know particularly the men might, might feel the, the weight of, and I know, you know, First, First Timothy 5.8 talks about me providing for my family, and I'm trying, right? These are all, this is just real life. And you're living between, you know, and, and God's promise and, and provision. And then you're, then you're upset because then you see like your cousin who doesn't even like seem like that great of a guy and he gets a job, you know? You're like, man, and you know he's lazy because he's posting about his job on Facebook every five minutes, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, just, that's how, or I mean, and, and, and probably the most serious is like, you know, a desire for children. And I feel like I have to say this on, on Child Dedication Day, right? I mean, it's like, you know, what, what? And that's like the ultimate prayer of the heart. It's like, all right, God, like I read the Bible and I'm like, you can open the womb and close the womb. And I read the Bible, and I'm like, well, you're, you're the, you know, one of you, the ways you describe yourself is you're the God of life, and, you know, and then if you're really honest, you're like, God, I mean, we're like, we're going to do the real Christian thing. Like, we're going we're gonna to dedicate them, we're going to raise them to the church, we're going to pray over them. 
You know, we're going to do, I mean, and, and then, you know, and maybe the, you know, the worst part of us, right, the dark part of us sometimes looks at other people and goes, why is it so easy for them to get pregnant? You know, and sometimes it feels like sometimes the people who don't want kids get pregnant. And, the, and it's like, it's all of this wrestling, right? That's, that's actually the real Christian life. It's like, oh, I'm wrestling, I'm, and I have to live. There's no other place to live. This is that, we all live here continuously. We live between God's promise and God's provision. Well, then what happens when God does provide? So, because some of you are in between, some of you God has provided. I want to show you what you do when, when God does provide. I love how the Bible speaks to all types of people in all types of places. Look at verse three. Verse three tells us exactly what to do when God provides for us. Here's what it says. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him Isaac. So what does he do? He names the son what God tells him to name him. That's what he said. He says, call him Isaac, which means laughter. And Abraham circumcised the son. Well, that was what God told him to do too. And he was eight days old as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So well, what do you do? And this is very simple, but we just, it's good to know these things before we get there. What do you do when God blesses you? What do you do when you've been praying for a spouse and you have one? What do you do when you're praying for a kid and you get one? What do you do when you're asking for more money and it comes? <laughs> what do you do when you say, Lord, you know, I'd like to be healthy and you become healthy? Because basically this is what they've been doing. They've been praying for, asking for, dreaming of, promise this, and they get the child. What do they do? They obey God and they do what God has told them to do in that area of their life. Now you need to know that this is the opposite of what most people do. Right? What do most people do? It's like, what, are people closer to God in pain or pleasure, usually? Pain, right? It's like, now, pain, certainly, we've talked about this. That's another sermon. Pain can drive you away from the Lord, right? You, you won't remain neutral, that's for sure. But most times, it's like, what happens in pain? It's like, you normally, you're like, well, I just, you know, I, I want a kid. Lord, help me. You're the, you're, or, or, Lord, I, I don't want to be single. Or, Lord, I, I don't want to, whatever situation you're in, you, you just feel a desperation. And then what can often happen is like, then the Lord gives you that gives you the spouse, whatever, and then is it, not in every case, not maybe in many cases, but in some cases, people then forget the Lord. They're less serious about the Lord once they have what they need, right? This is classic. This is, we fall in love with the creation over the creator. We fall in love with the gifts over the giver. This can happen. This is actually, this is interesting. You can, and I'm not a historian, but you can actually track what happens when Christianity comes to an area. I'll give you like the one-on-one version of when Christianity comes to an area. Christianity comes to an area, a new area, where it's never been. Uh, uh, there's a critical mass of Christians. Well, what do a critical mass of Christians bring to a new area? I'm not saying we're the only people that have this. Integrity, the Protestant work ethic, that's the name of it, the hard work ethic, um, the, the idea to be generous, to save, the idea to serve, and then what happens, not always in one generation, but what happens? Well, it takes usually, that kind of a mindset takes maybe two or three generations, and all of a sudden there's more you at least have enough to have extra. That normally takes maybe a generation. It's like, well then what, what, what tends, you, you gotta watch all of the different generations of Christians and what happens, right? The first generation believes, the second generation assumes, the third generation forgets, the fourth generation forsakes. And, that, and, and a lot of that is actually, and you know this, a lot of that's connected to, well, my, I don't need God. I have an iPhone, right? My prayers go to Google. I mean, you know, it's like, I. That's what Google is. It's like a form of praying. Oh, Lord, would you, you know, you ask questions and it gives you amazing answers. It's like a, it's, it's, it's like a God in the sky. Um, but anyway, it's a, so, you know, this is, this is the temptation. And so what they end up doing, and this is, this is just good to know. It's like, well, when you, what, you get married, it's like, what do you do? It's like, well, you obey God. It's like, you don't think that your life's going to be just easy now because you're married. You've got to obey God in your marriage and vice versa. So this is what they do. The Lord blesses, and then verse 6. And Sarah said, 
God has made laughter for me. So, again, I don't have time to get into this. You can do your own research. Laughter is a massive theme in the life of Abraham and Sarah. Right? Abraham laughs in wonder. Sarah laughs in ridicule earlier. Now Sarah's laughing again. She's saying, God is making me laugh. And then she says this, everyone who hears will laugh over me. Not laugh at, but laugh kind of, it's, the idea is laugh alongside. And, and it's kind of this, here's what I think this is saying. Because there's very little commentary on this, but what I think this is saying is something like, when do you know a relationship is restored? I'm not saying it's the only way you know. But one of the ways that you know a relationship is restored is you can laugh again. It's like, what does every husband do when his wife's angry at him? Try to make her laugh. I mean, maybe it's just me, I don't know. Oh, maybe bad idea, but but you know it's like what what, <laughs> but but like you know that doesn't always work. But then, you know kids, it's like what do you do when your kids mad at you? A lot of times, right? If you're young and you're trying, you know, it's like and you've you've tied the. It's like what are you trying to do? You're trying to make them laugh a little bit. It's like because you know, and, and what do you on the other side? It's like if you're mad at someone, what's the last thing you want to do? It's like well, you're not funny. You know, I'm not laughing with you. I'm not because also laughter is like I drop my guard just for a minute. Like you know, oh yeah, we're all, everything's cool. We can laugh together. We can relax together. So there's, there's the laughter returning, verse 7. And she said, uh, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I've borne him in an old age? Verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Uh, I want to talk about verse 8 because it's interesting. First of all, you know, we, we talked about the events, right? There's the, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, we're pregnant, gender reveal, there's the name. Now it's like we don't throw a great, big, massive, unique party when our kid turns three. Um, which is basically, by the way, the age that they w- when they would wean their children. You go, well, that sounds a little old, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? Nursing to three. And the reason they would do that, and this is actually kind of, this is why every word of scripture is like, they drops out. It's like, well, Isaac, that's helpful to know. It's, they would wean their children until they were three because most children didn't live to be three, and that was their best bet. It's actually, you know, it's like, well, you may not know this, but most people, one of the, ra- the amazing things where they say, call him Isaac, and they give a name, most people didn't name their kids until after they were three. It's like, why? Well, because then it's like more personal and like, you know, it's like, I don't know if you're going to live. And so, you know, we, you know, most of us take it for granted that our, you know, if we have a kid, he'll live and, you know, and everything will be fine. And I think the whole point of this is actually what's happening is we're seeing that something that seems normal for us was a major celebration. Basically, they take a moment to celebrate the unique God, the unique work God is doing. And that's exactly what we want to do as a church. That's what we try to do every Sunday. Because by the way, what's celebrated is replicated, you know? And I just want to tell you, I mean, I just say this just for a few minutes humbly, but we as a church, we just have, and I want you to know this because I, I get kind of a unique view sometimes, we have so much to celebrate. I mean, I, 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 I mean this, and I probably don't talk about this enough, but almost everywhere I go in this city, people come up to me, often strangers, often people who, they come up to me kind of sheepishly, they introduce themselves quickly, and then they tell me how much our church means to them. You know, and, it's, and you, you have stories like this, and every, every, same thing happens every week. That's you know, one of the reasons I stand out there, just to meet people, and people come up to me, and I had a couple come up to me with their son, their, you know, he was a young man, their son, the three of them came up to me, this was last week, and they said, hey, our son is going through surgeries again, he's kind of been his whole life, I, I don't know how he would have gotten through these surgeries without his community group. And then, and then I learned something, you know, you can learn, you're always learning something, it's like I learned something, it's like, and they said, yeah, actually they would, during, um, they would call him, and they would say, um, they wouldn't ask, can we come? They would say, we're coming. Well, <laughs> tell us if we shouldn't come, because we're coming right now. You know, that was just, a, in, uh, one, one lady said, I brought my friend to church. She's uh, not been to church in a long time. She's been coming for the last few weeks. She loves it. She said, the other day, she texted me after church and said, I just tithed for the first time. I'm so excited. 
I thought, there's a miracle right there. I mean, you know, <laughs> people texting each other about how excited they are about giving, you know? Um, we, I, and I can't get into a lot of these conversations, but, you know, I, I have an opportunity, along with some of the other staff, and I'm sure some, some of you, to have some of the more serious conversations about people thinking about moving for the sake of mission. I mean, I was talking to one lady, and she's, you know, she's telling me, she said, ever since Derek Delane, and that was the guy who came, he's going to Nashville, she said, every time, um, he, he, since he spoke, um, when I think about that talk and when I journal about it, I cry. She just started tearing up telling me about it. And she said, because I feel like the Lord is calling me that I'm not going to be in Winston-Salem my whole life. And I love it here, but I know that we're part of a church playing church, and I feel like eventually, I'm, I don't think it's Nashville. That's actually what she said. She said, I don't think it's Nashville, but I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to be leaving. So those, those are the kind of things that, you know, you, you have, a, you have a, a lady that introduced, <laughs> introduced herself to me this last week, last Sunday, and said, you know what? She said, this is the first time that I can remember where my teenagers are excited about coming to church. And so we, we, just, we just are humble and say, we just want to celebrate the great things that we're doing. And that, that's how the story of Abraham and Isaac's birth ends. Now, what you realize, and this is what the whole Testament's kind of about, is how all of these people that were these promised sons, they do good work, but ultimately they sin, they fail, and they die. And that's what happened with Isaac. Good guy, has some more kids, but ultimately, and we'll probably look at his life at some point, but he sins, he fails, he dies. So it all points to Jesus and let's turn there to see a very similar birth in Luke chapter 1. Here's what it says. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It'll be behind me, but here's what it says. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, so angels in the Old Testament, angels in the New Testament, we believe in supernatural beings. They're, they're ministers and messengers from God to serve God's people. We see them both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Gabriel shows up. He's one of the two angels that gets a name, right? We only know Gabriel and Michael are the only two names we know of angels in the Bible. So Gabriel shows up. He sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, part of the humility of Christmas, and I want you to understand this, part of the humility of Christmas is we're going to get to how Jesus came. As a baby, that's the, that's the center of it. But even where he came, he went to Nazareth. Nazareth is literally in the middle of nowhere. Na if Nazareth were in the United States, it would be one hour from a Dollar General, okay? <laughs> you know those places, right? It would be two hours from a Walmart. It would be three hours from a Starbucks. That's how you know, you know, like when somebody says, I'm from Charlotte, uh, really? No, I'm from Shelby, really? No, I'm, I'm from, you know, 45 minutes outside of Shelby. Okay, you're an hour away from a Dollar General. That's where you are. Um, and so um, that's, that's where he comes to. Nowhere Nazareth. Verse 27, to a virgin. Now, this is the key thing. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, I want to talk about the idea that Mary had a virgin birth because this is, this is maybe the central thing that we're celebrating, the, the coming of Christ in the unique way he came. It reminds us of a few things. First, it reminds us of the supernatural nature of Christianity. You know, uh, we, we live in a very modern world where people don't like, it's interesting, I mean, in one sense, they're very spiritual, you know. Nietzsche, I think he said, I think it was Nietzsche who said, when you stop believing in Christianity, you don't stop believing in something, you start believing in everything. So it's kind of a vague, we live in a kind of a weird weird, vague spirituality world, but, but, but the, the supernatural in the Bible, it offends people, but the virgin birth reminds us that Christianity is a supernatural faith, and you go, well, why was the virgin birth necessary? Now, this is really interesting, because, you know, th put your thinking cap on just for a minute. It's because, an, and think about this, a new person did not need to exist. The virgin birth did not bring into being a new person. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He has always existed. The virgin birth was tying that to humanity, that he, 
He emptied himself of his glory and took on human flesh. That's, that's why God is his father and then Mary is his earthly mother. That, and, and the whole idea there is that he had to be born sinless, right? That he's, he's called the second Adam. His father is not Adam in the same way that it is us. His father is God. So Jesus comes, born of the virgin. In fact, this is such an interesting little observation. This is such a big idea that Larry King, when it comes to the virgin birth, Larry King from Larry King Live, those of you who are younger, he interviewed people before there were podcasts and YouTube videos, okay? Big time interviewer. Uh, he was once asked, I think toward the end of his career, if you could interview one person, who would it be? He said, Jesus Christ. They said, if you could ask one question, what would it be? He said, it would be about the virgin birth. Because for Larry, Os or, uh, for, 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 uh, Larry uh, King, as a, um, as a Jew, he said that would be the issue that would settle it for him if Jesus Christ was really virgin born. He understood the importance of it. Um, verse 28, and he came to her, this is the angel, and he said, greetings, O favored one. So that's the grace of God, the favor, grace of God. Uh, the Lord is with you, verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And, and I just want to talk about Mary for a while because Mary is not an object of faith. That's where the Roman Catholic Church goes wrong. She's not somebody to pray to, but she is a great example of faith. Um, she, she is a very special young girl. I mean, mo most people, uh, almost everywhere I looked, said that Mary is somewhere between 13 and 15 years old, which kind of brings a whole new light to the story, right? If you know any 13 or 15-year-olds, right? Or if you are 13 or 15, or if you ever remember being 13, it's like, when you're 13 or 15, what are you worried about? It's like, you can't even remember what you were worried about, you know? You, you were worried, nowadays, I think you're, and I don't mean this belittling, it's like you're worried about maybe going to college, maybe, Starting to think about that, that might be, you're, you're worried, are you going to get a tablet or a phone for, I mean, you know, it's like, those are, and I get it, those are, but I'm saying, I think we'd all agree at 13 to 15, we were not, we did not feel ready to raise God. <laughs> right? It's like, that, that's basically what happens, you know, Mary is 13, 14, 15 years old, the, and, and, and then think about this, because this is really interesting, Mary is called, and I didn't know this until this week when I was studying this, Mary is considered to be the first Christian in the New Testament. So she's the first person to hear about Jesus, believe, and respond. It's like, and who is she? She's a 13-year-old, illiterate, poor, single mom. Is the first Christian in the Bible. It's like, well, why, why has, and this is an interesting thought, why has the church always cared about single moms? Always. It's like, well, because think about this. If Joseph wasn't a good man, then that's exactly who Jesus would have been raised by. But Joseph actually marries Mary and adopts Jesus and becomes his dad. What an incredible man. And actually, most people believe, we don't know for sure, but you know, Joseph's not married, or Joseph's not mentioned after Jesus is 12. Joseph was a good man. Most assume, most assume he died when Jesus was a teenager. And so for the second part of Jesus' life, he was raised by a single mom. It's like, man, Scripture just comes alive when you realize some of these, these cultural contexts that, that help make things. So here, here's Mary, and she's, you know, she's 13 years old, she's 14 years old, she's 15 years old. She has the same dreams for her life that any you know, girl does in that town back then. It's like, well, I'd like to get married, and that would be great, and you know, maybe we'll have a family, and maybe that's what I'll do with my life. You know? and, and, but now she gets this whole other plan come to, comes to her. And I want you to see again, I want to read this, how she responds, verse 29. But she was greatly troubled. It's like, well, no kidding, right? Um, <laughs> It, and it's the idea that she's thinking about things. The, the, troubled means to mull it over in your heart and think about it and meditate on it. 
at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And and I want to encourage you with this, because what we see is Mary, and we're going to see this in this, and I want you to see this as we read the rest of this conversation. She does not have a simplistic faith, but she does have a simple faith. There's a little difference there, okay? She doesn't have a simplistic faith, right? Like, you have to kind of go through different stages of belief normally. And you see these most clearly in kids that are raised in Christian homes. And, you know, and I love kids in Christian homes. I have three kids in Christian homes. This is, but it's most evident in them. And phase one is, and I don't mean this in any disrespectful way, but phase one tends to be like a naive faith. It's like, well, you know, well, why would I not believe this? And this is all I know. And, you know, being, have a naive, you know, and Mary doesn't have that type of faith. But that, that, that's, the type, that's the type of faith that we normally have. It's like, well, I'll just believe this because it's what I taught and I don't, don't really think about it a lot, right? And, and that won't last very long, right? If you go to middle school, if you go to high school, right, you're immediately, and you get to college, it's like, what, what, what's, so, what's so hard about those environments is you are confronted with people who think differently than you. Actually, the first thought that you have is in elementary school, it's people think differently than my parents. That, that happens in elementary school. And your kids come home and they go, people think differently than you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Give me an iPad, right? That's what they say. Um, and, um, true story. Um, so, um, <laughs> And so, that, and, then, and then phase two is, is cynical faith sometimes. Not that this always has to happen. Um, sometimes people go from naive, naive faith and they go immediately into mature, mature believing faith. But a lot of times people pass through cynical faith, skeptical faith. And, and this normally happens. It's like, you know, this is the classic high schooler who's read like two philosophy books, you know, or, you know, took one science class and feels like, well, you know, did you actually know that? You know, and it's, it's kind of this whole idea that, you know, I want to be cynical and I actually am not naive anymore. And there's some pride in that. I, I was naive. I was like you, but now I know more than you do. You know, and I know, and it's like, well, then there's, then there's the faith on the other side of that. That was a, the simplistic faith is naive. Cynical has no faith, right? It's just like, it's hopeless. It's nihilistic. You know, kind of like I said, it believes anything because it doesn't believe really in anything ultimately. Um, and then there's, there's, I don't know what to call it, maybe more of a mature faith, right? It, it's, it's the simplicity after you've gone through complexity, if that makes sense. So there's, there's you know, let me just take a moment and try to explain this. There's the simp- simplicity before you deal with the complexity of things, and that can last while you're a child. And then there's the simplicity that comes on the other side of dealing with the complexity. Like, I'll give you an example. You know, if, if you say to somebody, God loves you, well, shucks, you know, God loves you. It's like, well, it's like, well, that's simple. It's like, well, does God, love ev- does God love everybody? Does God love everybody the same way? What does love mean? Well, then why did Christ come to die? You know, you start asking some deep questions about it, and then you have to go through all the complexity of it. Well, you know, it's like, what does all the Bible say about love? And there are different types of God's love. And then you get to the other side of, the, through the complexity, the other side, you go, oh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Do you see that's the simplicity after you've gone through all the complexity, right? Simplicity is, uh, have a nice day. I think it's all going to work out. That's simplicity before complexity. It's like, well, your life's hard, and you're going to get sick, and you're going to die, and everybody you know is going to die. And there's going to be a lot of pain, and everything's going to be unfair, and okay, I got to take all of that through have a nice day, you know? It's like, um, well, then maybe you say something like this. Well, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And that's a, it's still simple, but it, and actually, this is actually what you want. What you want, not just me, but what you want me to do, and what you want any person who steps on this stage to do, is you want us to take very complex things and make them simple while keeping their substance. That's, that's, just, that's why you watch TED Talks, right? And bad teachers take simple things and they make them confusing. 
right? Okay, so, so that, this is the type of faith that Mary has. Look at verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Twice he tells her about the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, they don't get to choose the name. They get told the name. And that's because, what, and this is good to know, the reason that we name our kids is because we have authority over them, at least while they're in the home. That's the same reason Adam names the animals. It's like you name that which you have authority over. And so they're not allowed to have authority over Jesus because he ultimately has authority over them. He's existed before them and will live forever, and he is their God and will be their Savior. And so they get told the name. Verse 32, we're told about how great he'll be. He'll be great, Verse, uh, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of, of the father David. So basically it's saying he's going to be high, he's high, high and exalted. The throne of David is a shorthand for he's the answer to God's promises. Because that, that was the big promise. There's going to be a king that's going to come, and this is the type of king. It's like every promise is yes and amen in Christ. So that's what that means. Um, verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. So he will outlive and outlast everybody, all other kingdoms. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Look at all three persons of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High, that's God the Father, will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You have all three members of the Trinity there. So when you read that passage, I want to talk about something. When you read that passage, you see the exaltation and the humiliation of Christ. You see his divinity and his humanity, right? We always have to keep those together, right? It's the temptation of a church to just talk. It's the temptation of churches like ours, conservative theological churches, to only talk about the divinity of Christ. And it's a temptation of more liberally theological churches to only talk about the humanity of Christ, and he was both. And what we see here is, and, now, and, and in some sense, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about his divinity in this text, because it's like, oh, the things that are said about Christ, a, a lot of religions say that. Yeah, God's high, he's eternal, uh, he's the answer to all your problems, he's existed forever, and, and all those things are true. But I want to talk about what's unique in this passage, and what Christmas is really about, is about his humiliation. It's about that he, I mean, think about this. Jesus didn't just become a man, he became a baby. You know, it's like, we t sometimes think about Jesus and he's like 33 and he's walking around and he's quoting the book of, you know, Leviticus, you know? It's like, well, he did do those things, but he shows up as the, I mean, think about the vulnerability, right? Christianity has the only God who becomes vulnerable. He be, he, he's the only God that can be killed and tortured and he will be. He, he comes, I mean, there's, and those of you who have kids know this, uh, especially who have had infants, there's nothing more needy and vulnerable than a, than a small child, especially before nine months. And, Jesus, there, I, and we don't, there's a mystery, right, to the incarnation. But in some sense, Jesus Christ had to learn how to talk and walk and read. There, there's, a, there's a great humility. In fact, theologians talk about the three humiliations of Christ. This is just good to know. There's, there's the humiliation of Christ becoming a man. That was his first humiliation. And C.S. Lewis said that would be like you becoming an ant times a billion. That's what it would be like to become, for God to become a man. That was his first humiliation. His second humiliation is the humiliation of dying on a cross. It's like we'll die the worst painful criminal death. You know, have, have your life be cut short tragically, innocently at a young age. And then the third humiliation is that for the rest of human history, he would work through the church. So that's it, that he would become a man, that he would die a terrible death, and that he would decide to work through broken, sinful, rebellious, foolish people like us. That's the humiliation of Christ. And so in this passage, 
we see Jesus Christ and, he, and, he, and why he came. He comes to serve. He comes to die. He comes to suffer. So I want you to see how she responds. Verse 36, uh, he continues. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. So she's more like Sarah, old woman, older woman who's had a child miraculously. And this is the sixth month with her who's called barren. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Verse 38, and Mary said, and this is so important. I mean, I'll read it and then I'll make a comment. And Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So here she is, 13, 14, 15 year old, young teenager. And she surrenders her life to the will of the Lord. It's like, you know, you think about it in our culture today where, and I'm not picking just on the young women, I'm saying the young men too, maybe especially the young men. It's like adolescence is continually a stage where we just do whatever we want for as long as we want, right? It's like, well, it starts at 10 and it ends at 40, you know? <laughs> Adultolescence, they call it, right? Or emerging adulthood. And here you have a 13, 14, 15 year old girl who says, I want to surrender my life. I want to surrender my life to the will of the Lord for my life. You know, and for her, that was like, basically, she was going to be misunderstood, right? She's going to be, she's, we know by the size of the well in Nazareth, there was less than 100 people that lived in that town. So she's got a small town of fundamentalist Jews who don't like girls who get pregnant before they're married. And so that was, and then she doesn't know, is Joseph going to be a good man or not? She's got a lot of questions. She surrenders her life to the will of the Lord. I want, to, I want to talk about this because I think there's two components. This is a little bit of the complexity and the simplicity. It's like, well, what does it mean to surrender our lives? Because if I said to you, and if you said to me, Kyle, surrender your life to the Lord, you know, or be more surrendered, it's like, well, what does that mean? Is that a one-time decision? Or what does that feel like? Do I say something? Do I read something? Well, there's two components, and this is helpful to know, two components of surrender. The first is, um, I am willing to obey whatever God says, even if I don't like it. That's the first component of surrender. You know, and it's like, and, and so, you know, you read the Bible and you go, um, okay, if something comes up that I disagree with or I think differently then, then instead of editing the Bible, I'm going to change my mind, change my heart, I'm going to change my life, I'm going to repent. That's the, you know, that's the two options. You see something that you don't like and you, you can go, I can either edit my Bible or I can change my mind. And, and this is very, very important because, you know, Tim Keller, he's a pa former pastor in New York City, he says that unless the Bible can confront you, and therefore, really, God confronts you, then you can't have a relationship with him. Because really, I mean, like, if somebody can't confront you and challenge you, then I, you don't have anything that looks like a meaningful relationship with them. I mean, they may be your employee. They may be an acquaintance. But like, kind of the definition of, like, we have a good relationship is you can tell me things I don't want to hear. And maybe you're the only person because, well, we've got this relationship, and you're my friend, and so you'll say things to me that nobody else can say, and maybe nobody else should say, but you're going to say them to me. And so what you need to, and you need to know this, too, that... that the areas, and it's like the same, and it's a little different generationally because, you know, because the Bible transcends culture, it's going to confront and challenge culture differently depending on where you are. Um, but, you know, what, what's going to happen is usually in areas of sexuality, you'll read the Bible and you'll go, every area but that, or, or it'll be areas of money, or it'll be wherever your culture, and it'll, that'll be changing every election cycle, but it'll be wherever your culture is pressing on something and saying it's okay. So that, that's the first one. We talk about that one a lot. But here's the second one. The second element of surrender is not just to say, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey your word even if I don't like it. It's, it's to say, I'm going to accept what you bring into my life even if I don't understand it. And that's, that's even a more intense element. It's like, well, huh, you know, that, 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 that's, that's a lot of our lives. 
it's kind of a little bit more, and living in between promise and provision, we have a lot of difficult things that happen in our lives. You know, it's like, well, you know, let me just give a couple examples. It's like, well, what does it look like to accept that that person is gone in your life? But it doesn't mean that you don't grieve over it. It means that you're not angry and bitter at God about it. But you can go, okay, you know what? That person betrayed me. And I've got, I've got to, I've got to, God's sovereign, man's responsible, but th- this is where God has me in this season. Somebody that I love now loves somebody else. And these are real things. I didn't get the job. I can't have the child. And I'm not saying there's not attention. I'm not saying you don't wrestle with the Lord in all of these things. But, I mean, this is what we actually, it's interesting. In 1 Peter, when we, we preached through 1 Peter last, this last summer. In 1 Peter, there's this interesting verse. It says, um, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And the hand of God in Scripture, the shorthand, hand of God means plan of God. That's what that means. When you see hand of God, it's plan of God. So that's what it's shorthand for. So it says, if you'll humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, it says you will receive grace. There's actually a grace that comes into your life when you say, Lord, I receive this. I'm, I'm going to still pray about it. I'm going to still be, you know, get help. I'm going to still take the next steps. I'm gonna, but Lord, I'm not angry. I'm not bitter. Because we talk about this all the time. If you become angry, if you become bitter, if you become resentful, this is just a fact. You don't even have to be a Christian to know this. You will make everything worse. That's what you'll do. You'll just make it worse. And then if you get bitter and resentful and revengeful enough, then you bring everyone else with you. Because it's like, well, I want other people to be bitter and miserable. And I might even become vengeful. And so she surrenders to the Lord, and it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. In fact, look what happens next, verse 39. In those days, what was that? The days of the angel appeared. She heard the word of the Lord. She trusted God's word, not with a naive faith, but with a mature faith. But she surrendered to the Lord. But then it says this. In those days, Mary rose and went in haste. I mean, she hurried into the hill country to the town in Judah. Why? Verse 40. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. What did she need when she was struggling? She needed an older godly woman who she could talk to. See how practical scripture is? It's like, well, what do you need when life's difficult? Like you, you need some older godly men or older godly women that you can talk with. And, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, two questions to ask is, one is, are you, do you have women or men in your life whom you can run to, talk to, when life is difficult, when difficult things happen, when you're trying to surrender an area of your life to the Lord, when you're wrestling with what the scripture says? Do you have somebody like that? that that's why, by the way, when we, when we talk about community groups, when we talk about um, DNA groups, when we talk about all, coming to the weekender, all that kind of stuff, that's all to help you get into deeper discipleship and to connect you to the two things you're going to need the rest of your life, people who love you and people who know the Bible. And that's all we're trying to do. We're trying to connect you to those two things. The second question to ask yourself is, this is kind of, you, have to, you have to ask that question first. Do I have people I could go to? A more mature question after that is, am I the kind of person that people can come to? You know, you'd hope that, you know, that's like, that's actually a great goal for your life. Be the type of person other people would come to when things are difficult. It's like, it's a badge of honor in many ways. You know, I, a couple weeks ago, I had a friend, not in this church, different state actually, he, and we, you know, he was in my wedding. We're good friends. We, we don't talk, we haven't talked a ton. And uh, he sent me this text and it was just a picture of him and a girl. Uh, like, you know, it was like nice out and sent, me, sent this picture and he said, can we talk? This girl just broke my heart. And, you know, I just realized, I realized that this guy, it's a long story, but his wife had left him kind of just for another guy. Anyway, it, 
it's a long story, but it, it was terrible. It was tragic from what I can tell. You know, he was innocent. He, he wanted reconciliation. He wanted restoration. She didn't. So anyway, I get on the phone with this guy and I realize he just needs to talk to somebody about this. And, you know, and then, you know, he's telling me what it meant. If the, you know, it, this girl was like a whole new way of life. It was like a second start. It was like the, the ability to close the door on something and open the door. And we're just having this, gr- and I'm trying to encourage him with scripture. I'm trying to give him perspective. And I'm just trying to listen. And then I pray, prayed for him after. It's like, that's the Christian life. It's like, that, that's actually a community group or a friendship or a DNA group. That's what's functioning. It's like, well, here's what I'm struggling with. Well, and, and let, me, let me show you what Elizabeth does. I mean, she does what you can do, right? This is why our definition here of, of uh, discipleship is open Bible, open life. That's all she does. She opens the Bible, opens her life. She gives her words of encouragement. And she exclaimed with loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, my ba- the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So she, she ends with this encouragement, this word of God, and then I don't have time to get into it, but the rest of, of Luke 1 is what's called Mary's song. And, and uh, we're going to actually, if you come back tomorrow night for our prayer night, we're going to actually pray through this. It's a great song. It's the first song in your New Testament. It's also sung by Mary. And what's interesting is she goes from fearing, she goes from being afraid, she goes from doubting, she goes from questioning, she goes from surrendering by herself to when she gets in community, she's able to sing. And, and it's like, well, you know, that's, it's like, man, Christians have been singing, well, forever, since we've been Christian, you know, as long as the church has existed. And it's like, and, and when do we especially sing? When does the church historically especially sing? Christmas time. It's like, well, when is everybody doing Christmas carols? Well, Christmas time. You know, when do the churches that don't even normally have choirs get a choir? You know, if they do, it's like Christmas time. It's because there's, there's something about singing that's able to communicate everything more beautifully, more personally, more emotionally in a song. And, and I want you to see the, the last verse of, of chapter one, how the song ends. And then you, again, you see the unity uh, and comprehensive nature of scripture. Verse 55, as, ending in the song, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham. She ends by talking about Abraham. She understands this birth is connected to Abraham. Do you? She says, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, when I went to seminary, they talked about something called seed theology. Seed theology is where you follow the word offspring throughout the Bible. It's like, you know, it's like, well, how does the book of Exodus start? Like, you know, they multiplied greatly and had many children. It's like, well, you, you see it everywhere once, you, once you're able to see it. So it's everywhere. But the first place, the first time the word offspring shows up is in Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned. And I want you to see this. In Genesis chapter 3, this is the first promise in the Bible. It's right after they sin. It's said to Satan. Here's what it says. I will put enmity, he says this to the serpent, Satan, between you and the woman. Not a woman, but the woman. It's a reference to Mary, because look, and between your offspring and her offspring, he, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head. That's a crushing, decisive blow that happened at the cross. And you shall bruise his heel. It's a temporary blow, not a final blow. See, what we see here is that Mary understood that the child that was going to be born was going to be the Savior of the world. And and so this is what's so interesting. What's so interesting is that the way the gospel went forward first, we said it was, yes, it was to a single single mom who was a teenager, who was illiterate, who was obscure, uh, who was poor, okay, all of that. 
But here's what else was interesting. It happened to one person. By the way, that's how the gospel always goes forward. The first time the gospel goes forward, the first time it's announced, it's not a massive crowd. It's not like 15 men or women. It's not a bunch of disciples. It's not groups. It's an individual. And I want you to know that's how the gospel still goes forward. And it's actually, God says to every person spiritually what he said to Mary physically. He said this, Christ needs to be born in you. You need to be made alive spiritually. You need Christ to be formed in you, which is impossible by yourself. It's only the Holy Spirit that can do that. When the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, and by the way, we want this to be a, a place where as that's happening in your life, as, as the Holy Spirit is taking the word of God and applying it to your life, you can ask questions like Mary does. She asks questions. It's okay. I've got questions. How does all this fit together? She can't, she struggles to surrender just by herself. She needs a community, right? I remember Tim Keller told a story. He said, he said after service, a woman was sitting all by herself one time. He was a pastor in New York City. And he went after her and she, he talked to her afterwards and she was sitting there all by herself. And she said, I just gave my life to Christ, but I have no idea what to do now. And he said, well, you need to get in community. You can't do this by yourself. So we want to be a church where we can, we want to talk to you about your doubts. We want to help you surrender your life to Christ. We want to walk with you through it. Let's pray together. Lord, that's our prayer right now. Lord, I pray in this room, if there is any person who would say, like Mary, they need to surrender their life for the first time. They need to be born again. They need to let Christ dwell in them. They have questions, but they want to say, really for the first time in their life, I surrender to the Lord. Let it be his will, not my will. I don't understand everything, but I believe it. I believe somehow what Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago on that cross, it made a way for me. I believe that Jesus Christ was born so that I could be born again, so that I could have new life. If that's you, if you would say, for the first time today, you want to give your life to Christ, would you put your hand in the air? If you would say, that would be you. Thank you. Anyone else? If you'd say, today I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. Lord, we come to you right now in Jesus' name. We thank you for his humiliation, for his willingness to become like those he wants to save, for his willingness to live a life of service and sacrifice. May we do the same. We ask all this in his name. Amen.